In 2010, Trains Magazine partnered with film advocate John Farr to list the 100 greatest train movies. I'm your conductor, Adam Glass. And I'm your engineer, Ron Freeman. This is the Movie Roundhouse, an occasional podcast where we take a randomized look at these 100 greatest train movies. Engine number 14, Bound for Glory, is about to leave the station. As Trains Magazine says, lights, camera, all aboard. So last fall, uh, while bumming around Wikipedia reading about Buster Keaton movies, I ran across a reference to Trains Magazine's list of the 100 greatest train movies, and I immediately needed to know what that was. Uh, I've, I've got this psychological problem, Ron, that whenever I see a list of movies, I just think I need to systematically go through it for a podcast. It's uh, a byproduct of my other podcast, Lost in Criterion. We're going through the entire Criterion collection. Uh, and I'm eight years into that. So it's really the only way I think about movies at this point for some reason. No, it's not the only way I think about movies, obviously, but it is forefront. But I, the only way I could find the list was a scanned copy of the table of contents of the magazine. Uh, and everything was in alphabetical order, and it was very hard to tell what it was, what it was ranked, or even to just comprehend what was on the list right <laughs> yeah it's not it's not super clear why they're ranked the way they are until right. you realize until you realize like the movie the train which is a, a pretty cool action film is number one while lawrence of arabia is 91 that you kind of figure it's not ranked on how good the films are but how much trains are in them <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and and that's not even really all the way true. Like going through the list, yeah. like there's some, uh, you know, just flipping through the magazine, there's some uh, some very interesting ones. Like George Washington is a uh, uh, is a fairly recent movie. I think it's from 2008, if I remember correctly, and it's one I've seen before. But it's a coming of age story about a uh, a, a black preteen boy. Um, living in like North Carolina, I think. Uh, and it takes place, they play in a lot of train yards, but they're not like actively engaging with the trains. And in fact, the yeah. trains magazines who in each of these have little train facts accompanying the review has no yeah. train facts for George Washington. Um, <laughs> they have no train I, content for that. Yeah. I'm interested how this, you know, this magazine even came into existence. Like they thought that they needed to do this. And then John Farr apparently wrote like every review. He wrote right. the entire magazine. Right. And so I wonder if they just, like 
gave him complete free reign or if there was some editorial board arguing over the placement of George Washington on the list. But um, yeah, I just I think I'm tickled at this magazine. This I got my copy off of eBay um, for just a few dollars and got it in the mail just today. And I've been flipping through it this evening, and it's a lot of fun. It is a and, lot of fun. Um, for those of you out there listening, especially those who don't know us, um, I assume there's going to be some people who are really knowledgeable about trains that stumble on this podcast. And I'm going to speak for myself, and I, probably for Adam too, that we are not very knowledgeable about trains. We, we are at not all. train people, yeah. <laughs> but um, considering this is a podcast that's going to be, you know, bi monthly for. Um, you know, if we do all 100 movies, it's going to take like 16 years. Yeah. I really think this podcast might document my dissension <laughs> if that's a train person. You're going to be a train but boy by the time we finish this. Yeah. In 16 years, I'm going to know everything about trains. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, I really hope that we eventually get like listener emails correcting us on stuff. Uh, that'll be really thrilling for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, and if you're if you're really into trains and kind of into movies and want to join the podcast, uh, please by all means send us an email, movieroundhouse at gmail dot com if you want to. Uh, oh, good. I want know. to yell at us, or you could yell at us on Twitter too at movie roundhouse. Yeah, on Twitter. Um, yeah. Did you read the editor Kevin P. Keefe wrote a short uh, short introduction? At the beginning, it's on page uh, three, I believe, right before the table of contents. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. I haven't read it all. So one thing he talks about is that uh, the ranking of of best train movies is obviously very contentious, and his hope is that John Farr's list is less definitive and more a jumping off point for conversation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have seen a lot of train forums commenting on the list and Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> uh just, you know, in mostly while I was I was trying to find a digitized copy of the entire magazine before I broke down and bought it. Actually, I didn't even buy yeah. it. I asked for it for Christmas. That's how I got around uh, <laughs> purchasing it. But in that, I saw a lot of people commenting on it and there were there were guys who Mostly they were very into trains and a little into movies, uh, which is, you know, it's a trains magazines list. So the movie sure. forums aren't talking about it. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was somebody, one person said, yeah, I saw one of them uh, was going to be on TCM. So I set my, set my DVR to record it and it was like three hours long. So that was, that was four days of me watching that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what movie it was that he was talking about. I don't think there's actually any, you know, m over three hour long movies on the list. So I don't oh, remember. There, what are few. there are a few. Yeah. But I thought when you posted the list on Twitter, and I think you made a joke about doing a podcast. First. Yes, I did. Now, I saw I saw the list and like, man, there's a lot of great movies on this list. I totally do that. Yeah. Just because I, I see this list of 100 and there's maybe 20 movies that I've seen. But they're good movies, on right? Like this, is not this is not a crappy list to go through. This is a lot of quality stuff. I'm very excited to go through all these films. Like this is, like even if the, the podcast you know sputters out and doesn't happen or 
we're not alive or raptured or whatever in 16 years, you know, I'm going to want to go through this list because there's some great stuff. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, will be on board with that. I I hope (laughs) Absolutely. All puns intended. We should just get that out of the way (laughs) to begin with. Uh, (laughs) Every pun is purposeful. Um, Were there any movies that you think of when you think of train movies that didn't make the list and you feel a little disappointed in that fact? The thing is, there are some movies on here that really just have like a really great sequence with a train. Uh, I think um, the one that jumped out at me was The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which Mm -hmm. is a movie I really, really love. I had read the novel back in the spring and just in the opening scene they don't even like show the robbing of the train but the way that the train is filmed is so beautifully (laughs) that i just like it's it's a stunning like few minutes of a train being on camera it's so gorgeous right so that jumped out at me but i understand it not making the list i mean this was in 2010 i think that movie came out well, it came out before in, that. It came out in two thousand seven, so um, so it could have been. There was time, they, certainly. Well, that's the the other interesting thing about the list is that there, with one exception, there are no dates on the table of contents for what movie it is. Uh, for some yeah. reason, the Great Train Robbery is marked as the nineteen seventy nine version, but other movies where there's multiple versions that were already out at two thousand ten yeah. aren't marked, like uh, Three Ten to Yuma. Uh, it's talking yeah. about the original, which is. I mean, they're both good movies, but uh, yeah. But I needed to get a copy of the magazine to figure out it was talking about the original, right? <laughs> or uh, I figured it was. Yeah, yeah. Or which version of uh, Murder on the Orient Express that it was talking about was uh, was a mystery Gross. I had to investigate. Uh, and it's yeah. the it's the seventies version, which is also it's a very fun, good movie. But. And obviously the newest one of those, I think, is recent enough that it wanted to have come out. In 16 years, we'll do an updated list right, for right. them. We'll, 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 <laughs> by that time, we will be the foremost experts, and Trains Magazine should be coming to us <laughs> to to write the new list. Uh, and we'll get, yeah. we'll get Train to Busan on there, uh, Unstoppable, <laughs> uh, Snowpiercer, all the more recent Train movies. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about Snowpiercer. Yeah. I was really disappointed yeah, that very different. Yeah. Throw very Mama different. from the train is not on the list. And that that kind of kind of disappointed me. Um <laughs> You don't have uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, another eighties one that isn't on there. I know you right. mentioned possibly <laughs> yes. the podcast after. My roommate wanted to name <laughs> the podcast Trains, Trains and Trainsmobiles, uh, while we were trying <laughs> to think of a name, which I mean I guess it's not too late, but I don't. I'm not real keen on it's the idea. It's funny. It's but, funny. Uh, it's funny and it's memorable, but it's also a mouthful, and it's way too many characters to uh, to name a Twitter feed. That unfortunately. Let's get to talking. This first episode is on uh, movie number fourteen. The way we're going through this, uh, in order to. Because it's such a long project and we don't want to start at the end or start at the beginning, um, we decided to go through this randomly. So I am rolling a 100-sided die to decide what movies we're choosing. And 14 came up first, which I told uh, 
I told Ron was a bit of softball to him, since he's writing a song based on each of the movies. I thought uh, a Woody Guthrie biopic might be something that you could just bleed out real quick. But then I, I realized maybe you hold Woody Guthrie in in high esteem, and you'd, you'd actually take longer to write this one to try and make sure it was perfect. <laughs> it did take a while, but I was sufficiently inspired. I've worried more because there's some movies on the list like i uh, like the fugitive is on here and i love the fugitive but the fugitive doesn't have deep themes it's a fun movie yeah like it's going to be harder to write songs sometimes with just fun movies rather than movies that right. have some deeper thoughts going on. so i was a little bit less worried i was thankful to have bound for glory as a starter yeah uh i uh <laughs> I actually only know you because of Woody Guthrie. I don't know if you know that. Uh, oh, it's uh, it's a, it's kind of a convoluted thing, but uh, you and I only met each other because I started attending uh, the Columbus Mennonite Church, and I yeah. only started attending the Columbus Mennonite Church because one day they were the venue for a Woody Guthrie's hundredth birthday celebration. It was a sing along. Yeah. And I went to that, and I thought, you know what? I could come to this church on Sunday, and that's when I started coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that night. I don't believe I met you that night. Um, I must have met you. You know, uh, we did not meet that I night, played, certainly. But <laughs> yeah, I played that show. I played so long; it's been good to know you at mm-hmm. that show, and uh, which is probably my favorite Guthrie song. It's one that uh, I often sing to my two-year-old at night in bed. So she knows it. She can sing along with the chorus. Um, my, uh, there's this uh, woman named Elizabeth Mitchell who does kids' songs, who did um, a really wonderful CD of all Woody Guthrie kids' songs. And we listen to it in the car all the time with Rosie, our two-year-old. And she loves it. There are several Woody songs um, she knows. So uh, his songs are a part of our household. Um, and I really love it. I love diving in. He's, he wrote so many things that you can't know them all. Right. And, uh, it's not like I was ever an obsessive Woody listener, but I, I, I've seen Bound for Glory maybe like 15 years ago. Um, and I didn't remember much. I rewatched it for this, but like I was pretty knowledgeable about, you know, some of the story in it anyway, and his mm-hmm. background. Um, and like my wife read a biography of him back in the spring. You know, we're we are very much a pro Woody household. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too deep into the movie, let's talk about how the magazine talks about the movie. Uh, John Farr's review of this is about a thousand words long, which is about the length of of all of his reviews. Some of them are much shorter, actually. This one, from what yeah. I was flipping through, this is actually one of the longer ones. Um, but it's also mostly plot re- <laughs> recap. Um, yeah. What I found interesting about the review, um, I learned something from it first off. I did not know that Tim Buckley had been cast in the role originally. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately passed before filming started, uh, which gets us to another editing mistake on Trains Magazine's part because they list Tim Buckley in the cast. Uh 
in this movie. They do? They do. Uh, they oh. are directed by Hal Ashby, cast David Carradine, Tim Buckley, Melinda Dillon, Ron, Ronnie Cox. Uh, Tim Buckley was not in this movie. Um, <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, there are some surprising people in this movie. Uh, E.M. Yeah. Walsh is in this movie for 20 seconds, and uh, James Hong is in this movie, as James Hong is in nearly every movie that has ever been made. Uh, uh, also very shortly, but, uh, but Tim Buckley is not, uh, not one of the people in this movie, yeah. uh, because he died. Uh, but, uh, let's not focus on that. Let's, uh, let's move on. Keep this train rolling. The train comments on this are some of my favorite that I've seen in flipping through the magazine. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's very good. Uh, as the, uh, the train comments we have that, uh, it was primarily filmed on location with the Sierra railroad. Um, the train yard scenes are at the Sierra railroad roundhouse in Jamestown, California, which is now a, uh, a railroad museum state park. Um, they mentioned that the trains that we see on screen were driven by a McLeod River 262, number 25, which was built by Baldwin yeah. Locomotive out of Pennsylvania in 1924. Uh, all of those scenes are on the Sierra Railroad around Stockton, California, uh, or rather on the Tidewater Southern Railroad lines around Stockton, California. Uh, and they mentioned that that, en- that engine is currently stored at McLeod California, and they also name an egregious goof. <laughs> egregious. At one point, Carradine is at the front in the front seat of a car. It's a scene where he and another gentleman are about to jump on the train. Um, and there's and they say he's staring through the windshield at the oncoming steam-powered freight train, but clearly visible on the adjacent track is a Western Pacific GE U30B a diesel built in the late 1960s an egregious <laughs> era i'm so sorry to hear that yeah <laughs> you know i i'm generally pretty forgiving of goofs in movies right. but this but this one. Blood. now uh, now that we're becoming <laughs> train boys you know if you if you're watching a depression era movie and you see like a late 60s you know mustang go by right um like a car it really screams out at but um, because everybody knows cars probably better than trains. Um, with this, like I never would have noticed because right. I don't have that in me, that I, knowledge of trains. But I will, I will by the time the podcast. Right, right, um, yeah. And also, it's a lot. You know, where if you're filming on location in a train yard, it, it might be a pretty big hassle to, uh, you know get a huge train out of the way rather than like getting non-period cars out of the way. Right. Um, I don't know. I feel, I feel like Ashby probably was just in a spot. He just didn't care. Right. I think that's a lot of goofs that are more like the director didn't think it mattered that much. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, for, for our train enthusiast viewers, it's, it's probably something that really matters. Like as egregious (laughs) as it would be to see a, a you know a 60s mustang in this uh this is a 1960s yeah. diesel engine and 
I I didn't even notice it, but I'm sure <laughs> there are people who watch this movie who see it plain as day in the background and think, well, that's not a 1960s. And then they turn off the yeah. movie and they're done with it because if they're going to goof like that, you, you don't know what are they going to goof <laughs> in the rest of the movie, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. There is actually one thing I was surprised far didn't notice uh, or didn't mention about this movie, and that it is... It's the first movie to use a Steadicam. Uh, oh, there, yeah, a... I did see that on the Steadicam trivia. Yeah. Um, is, that, um, is that for the scene on top of the train that he mentions? That's really cool because you can tell uh, Carradine and Guthrie is sitting on top of a train that's really moving down, right. Right. Uh, down the track and you see scenery changing like it's obvious he's riding on top of the train. right that train is obviously moving and that's one one thing uh i think the trains magazine people appreciate uh in some of their trivia and uh yeah. and one thing i appreciate it's, is that these are these are real trains and they're really interacting with them um yeah yeah from a from a and that's what's standpoint, so, certainly with so many of these like train things like you know, they have used real trains. You can't fake it for the most part. Right. Um, like, I'm sure there are points in time where models are used or whatever, but for the most part, like, they just filmed on trains. And um, so, you know, it's cool how, you know, we are so used to seeing CGI stuff now where, like, the backgrounds are CGI. It doesn't even right. look like they're standing in a real spot, you know? Yeah. So I kind of like, you know, with this movie, just, it was dirty. It was, you know, there was grime on this movie. There was, you know, it really looked like it took place on earth in the depression. Right. And I appreciate that. And the, I mean, I think of the dust ball scenes in this movie to get away from the train stop. Oh yeah. But, oh my gosh, how the hell did they kick up all that dust and film these like horrible dust storms? Like that's, really impressive right to do that without EGI these these huge dust drums that are in the first act um absolutely but yeah. it's I, I i generally um i gravitate towards a lot of 60s and 70s films and this kind of thing is just right up my alley i, I love these kind of movies so we're, we're that's part of why i was excited to make this uh to make this podcast it's yeah. good to get to just watch <laughs> I'm uh, I'm happy that you're excited. We'll watch the French Connection yeah. at some point, so you'll get you'll get some some more oh, yeah. this century or this uh, this time period too. Um, you know, in in other times, uh, you know, even of this age yeah. and older, yeah. they might have done that train, the the riding of the train with like rear projection. Uh, yeah, and as such, I I I appreciate that they're really up there. Um, I'm sure that today insurance companies would tell them they're not allowed to do that. Um, but, yeah. uh, but it's good. It's very nice. Now the steady cam was actually, uh, I don't know if it was used for that. And certainly it's a steady shot that's uh, mounted on a train. Yeah. So you'd think maybe, um, but, uh, but the scene I see referenced with the steady cam stuff uh, is a uh, three minute long take of one of the camps i think it's where where woody uh and uh randy quaid's character are going yeah 
uh, over to the truck to find out that they're only hiring 30 people that day. Um, yeah. And that's about a three minute long take of Woody walking through the camp. And that's, uh, that's the study cam shot that I see referenced. Um, and shot by the inventor of the steady cam, Garrett Brown, um, yeah. <laughs> who is operating it there, but is not the cinematographer for this. Uh, yeah. The cinematographer for this uh, won an Oscar. Uh, yeah. Which, well deserved. Wexler. Yeah. <laughs> it's, is that right? He directed um, oh the movie with Robert Forrester, uh, Medium Cool. Okay. And he was a cin- cinematographer on like tons of classic things right um there is and i've seen some of this uh he hated david carrie did he and there was when there was a um there was like some uh special like tribute night for the movie like a few years back before carrie died where they were having a scene a screening and um carrie or carrie and wexler like got into a like a, a huge argument at the screening. Oh, no. <laughs> like they still hate each other enough to fight at the screening like forty years later. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. I there, did not... There's I think footage of that somewhere. Well, are there trains in that footage? Maybe we can add it to the list. No, uh, no we can't cover it on the Dang it. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I had never seen this movie before. Uh, yeah. was really impressed with it. I know it's obviously it's based on Guthrie's own, you know, autobiography, his own, his writing about his own life. Um, yeah, it is, uh, I assume fictionalized from that though. I also assume Guthrie was not exactly forthright in his own autobiography. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, it is, uh, I think far mentions in the review uh that uh i think guthrie and uh one other named person are the only real people uh his wife his wife yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah the rest are all composite characters or uh, stand in right uh but i know his wife his first wife yeah I also remember from that uh, from that Woody Guthrie hundredth birthday that uh, somebody stood up in the middle of it to ask whoever was play acting as Guthrie that night. Um, I can't remember who it was, uh, but uh, or who was being Guthrie? I obviously don't remember who stood up, but yeah. <laughs> but they stood up and and asked very pointed questions about Woody Guthrie abandoning his wife and children uh, <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> Yeah, that was a weird thing. Um, I understand, you know, I see stuff like that in movies where, I mean, and he is not painted as, you know, this all around great guy. They definitely are pretty honest about his failings as husband and father. Um, I know, like, as somebody, I've been married almost 10 years and father for two the longer I'm a husband and father, the more stuff like that irks me. Right. In like in movies. Um, I mean, I'm not irked by this so much, like the way it's depicted. Like it's hard. Um, 
to really idolize Guthrie when you see stuff like that. But honestly, we shouldn't be idolizing Guthrie, you know, anyway. Right. But uh, it, it is humanizing, but I don't know. It's It's something where, you know, like, some people really can't stand when a character is mean to a dog or something like that. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of easy, you know, when you're uh, trying your best to be a good dad and husband to be really annoyed by characters that aren't right. Um, not even trying, you know, um, and it doesn't seem like he's really trying. I, hopefully I think he, you know, had, better relationship success with his second wife and pack of kids and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard. It's it reminds me, uh, this is, this is a little more jokey, but it, it, it does, you know, I have, I have a friend, uh, a very dear friend whose father looks like Richard Dreyfus spitting him. Okay. Honestly, uh, even okay. more so when he was younger, uh, and this friend cannot watch Close Encounters. His, to him, Close Encounters oh, yeah. of the Third Kind is a story where he is literally seeing his father go crazy and leave his family. Uh, so you know, I understand. You, you have those emotional responses in the way uh, a character is portrayed, and yeah, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna feel that way, and it's. That's what movies are supposed to do, make you feel a way, right? Sure. So, so there's yeah. that. And I'm not like in some position where I turn stuff off or anything. And, you know, um, I'm trying, I try to watch a movie very openly, thinking of what I can get from it. Woody is somebody who, uh, you know, I do admire in a lot of ways. And there's a ton of musicians that I'm huge fans of that I'm sure did way worse things than Woody Guthrie. Right. Or right. Whatever. There, there's, point where obviously our culture right now has a lot of has a lot of arguments right now about separating art from artist but uh the longer the artist has been dead the easier it is for me right. no that <laughs> makes like, that makes no perfect sense one. i don't <laughs> you know, listen like it, it doesn't matter as much anymore or you know you look at what woody guthrie was able to bring to the world through his writing and his songs and everything and it really really mattered to the world right. in a lot of ways and he probably doesn't do that as somebody who doesn't leave Oklahoma and doesn't wander the country and doesn't kind of just do as he feels in a lot of ways um, there's a lot of artists like that and there's a lot of people that really end up having to sacrifice relationships in order to put out good work and that's a shame that that has to happen. Um, and it doesn't have to happen. There is nothing wrong with leaving, leading an existence where you don't put out the work. Right. Um, it's okay. Um, but now to, to get a little meta, you know, beyond, beyond the text of the film and, and Woody, you know, you can also think about, you know, artists who are sort of famous for, for doing that, you know, or, or, or that is part of, of who they are having abandoned their family, whose, uh, kids become artists, uh, themselves, you know, uh, and, and Woody certainly, you know, Arlo became an artist in his own right. But I think also of, uh, the Wainwright family, 
Yeah. And I was also reminded of that fairly recently with uh, Justin Towns Earl and Steve Earl. Justin Towns Earl passed a few months ago. And, yeah. Uh, and I remembered one time when I went to see Justin Towns Earl, and he was talking about uh, about his relationship with his dad and how uh, how his dad had been divorced twice before he was with Justin Towns Earl's mother. Uh, and yeah. someone in the audience said, well, third time's a charm, right? And Justin Towns Earl said, I believe for my father it was six or seven times, you'll find. Uh, <laughs> I believe I believe I was at that show too. Yeah. Um, if it was here in Columbus, I'm pretty sure I was. was yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, people have fraught relationships um, for good reason, uh, and, and maybe maybe a fraught relationship with your parents uh, does produce good art. But also, you could probably produce good art without those relationships. I think. Um, so what I'm saying I mean, some people some people can and some can't right right yeah. right what I'm saying to you particularly Ron is that you shouldn't leave your wife and child under the hope that it will make your art better that's all I'm I just <laughs> I know it won't make it better yeah. <laughs> I know it'll only will hate me I don't, um, I don't want you to take the wrong lesson from this movie and... <laughs> it's you know I often think about like I would really love to be able to hit the road sometime. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to hop freight trains and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but then I think of how, like, there's days where I've literally driven all day. And how tired I was at the end. Yeah. And how much my neck hurt. And I was, like, all stiff. I'm like, I don't want to spend all day in a car. Why would I want to go hit the road all the time? This sucks. I'm going back home. Right. You know, uh, it's... Uh, like there is, I think so many musicians and creative types love um, the idea of wandering and um, just hitting the open road and being free with our time in ways that, uh, you know, we want to be more free generally as, as people. But, um, you know, I know I'm someone who my creative time is basically after 930 at night my wife goes to bed and the whole family's asleep from nine thirty on I can be creative if I don't have too many chores to do. And the idea of that open, just I'm going to leave and I'm going to write songs in, in a boxcar if I feel like it. Uh, like that sounds really, really inviting and free. Um, and some people respond to it. Um, but you know, some people like, I know I have, way too much conscience for that and wait I, I'm also too emotionally attached to actually even do that like I would never want to right you know I actually like my wife <laughs> I like my kid not just the love them I actually like being around and so um, certainly that's not where I'm going but uh, you know I, I look at I thought a lot about wrote the song for it and I know it shows up in the song a little bit but um, yeah so that's that's Guthrie we just kind of have to accept right, it with right. the idea you know he created great work after that and you know sometimes uh, lousy people create some great things that really help justify them being on this earth <laughs> right right 
and I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not here to cancel Woody Guthrie. I'm a big Woody Guthrie fan. I, but I oh, think yeah. we can, we can honestly say he treated his wife and his kids poorly. It's yeah. there. That's true. Uh, and he also, <laughs> yeah, did, did some good stuff. And I think, you know, this week, I don't know if you're, uh, if you engaged with it at all, or maybe you're a little insulated from it. Um, but uh, but this past week was the inauguration, and Jennifer Lopez performed "This Land Is Your Land," Woody Guthrie song that that ends the movie here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of commentary about people really enjoying that performance and thinking Jennifer Lopez did very well. But I also follow a lot of Native activists who view that song as a celebration of colonialism uh that uh that woody guthrie you know he wrote this song as as a uh attack on private property uh but but uh from a different point of view a white man singing this land is my land this land is your land uh is uh a uh a declaration of (laughs) ownership of land that he does not actually own. And certainly the people Guthrie is trying to say also don't own the land in the, in his work. They don't own the land, but I guess I feel more like, while it's a declaration of ownership, it feels like a declaration that nobody owns it. Right. At the same right, time. Right. And in and saying, I had not, I had not heard any of this. Right. I knew, the Jennifer Lopez thing happened. I did not know it was even part of the inauguration. Somebody just put it on uh, my Facebook, but I had not followed up and heard. Her mm-hmm. And, you know, neither of us are, are Native people, and, and neither of us are, are Native activists, certainly. Um, but uh, but it is, you know, it is interesting to see someone else's perspective because, for me, it is very much a, a song I love because it is saying... Uh, those rich people don't don't own everything, <laughs> and uh, and you know imaginary lines don't matter. I I particularly love the the verse that never gets sung about. Uh, as I was walking, I saw a sign that said, uh, "Do not enter," uh, but on the far side it said it didn't say anything. Um, yeah, but uh, but at the same time, uh, to be mindful of other people's uh, points of view. Uh, to see that sure. there were people who who see that song in a very different light, um, and it's not a matter of you know a lack of knowledge; it's just a different viewpoint. Um, For sure, yeah. Uh, and i i like I like how this movie handles uh, Woody's religion and politics in the interactions he has. Yeah. Right, as we've got it's. It's not a very long tick from when he interacts with that pastor who uh, he asks for a job or to pay for a meal. You know, he asks to work for a meal. The pastor says, well, there's no work, so you don't get to eat. But I appreciate that you asked to to work, but I can't give it to you because that would be charity, and charity's bad. Uh, Which is not a very good reading in the New Testament, but... uh, (laughs) But it's not very long after that that we get uh, a shot of Woody performing uh, uh, 
which it's one of the songs that's particularly explicitly mentioned Jesus Christ, but I can't remember which one it was. Uh, it's not a, it's not lay Jesus Christ in his grave. It's uh, I can't remember anyway. Um, but then uh, we also get, you know, from one of our composite characters, his interaction with the women, he, woman he meets in California. We get a, a protracted conversation about class politics <laughs> from yeah. that. Right. And obviously we get all the interaction of him and uh, the unionizing that very much wears that on its sleeve. Though though unionizing in the mid-70s and unionizing in the Dust Bowl were very different things, and America's yeah. relationship to unions today are very different from both those things. So there's maybe less less political risk on Ashby's end to to portray the unionizing aspect of uh, of his life without a more overt socialism aspect to it. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, they didn't uh, they didn't dive all that deep into the politics. It's right. it's almost like they spent more time showing how much he cared about the politics right. and how much he wouldn't let that stuff go. Um, they don't put a lot of names on things that he believed or even got very specific about things that he believed besides uh, the union stuff. Right. Um, I understand if that's, that's maybe like the focus of that particular era of his life. Um, Cause some of the anti-fascism stuff that was, you know, kind of in the period just after this movie ends. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, I understand just focusing on the union stuff just from, like a time period and um, just a storytelling choice just because that's what was there. Maybe the easiest thing to come across and also like maybe the easiest thing to portray sympathetically. You see all these like farmers, you know, working, what were they working for? Um, uh, like 30 cents a day. Or yeah. Yeah. Like it was, that. Something noxiously. It low. was barely subsistence uh, wages. If, if yeah. that, right. And I guess, you know, to me, that that union stuff, particularly in Woody's time, is so intrinsically political. But I think in the 60s, it becomes a little less so because the the unions are much stronger and much less only associated with with left-wing organizing, right? So, I don't know. Uh, It is certainly the focus of that point in his life. So, you're right to say it makes sense that (laughs) they don't get into any of his other political stuff, but yeah. Yeah. We also don't get, uh, his anti, uh, his anti Trump song, you know, doesn't get performed in this. Right? So <laughs> I know. they should have, uh, they should have shoehorned that one in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's editing room floor. Uh, they get one, one scene in New York and it's his anti Trump song <laughs> that he never recorded. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it really is a beautifully shot movie. Uh like you said, the the Dust Bowl stuff is is uh I really I'm sure there's a very simple explanation for how they do the the dust clouds rolling in in that overhead shot yeah. of the town, but I don't know what it is and it looks great. So <laughs> I don't know if there was any commentary on the DVD uh that I have. I didn't think there was. Hmm. Um, that'd be the kind, I mean, with, um, 
I mean, Wexler, I think, was the guy who lived the longest, who worked on it, mm-hmm. as far as major, you know, like Randy Quaid's still alive. But, um, I mean, Ashby died quite a long time ago before they um, did DVD commentaries, which is sad. Like, everybody should do a DVD commentary before they die of everything. <laughs> but, we should um, make them do one, yes. Because I just want to know that kind of thing. Like, why isn't, you know, that's that's cool. Like, I, it's hard to be super into movies, you know, because every time I watch something, I just about always, you know, hit the IMDb page, hit Wikipedia, like do online things to learn more about it, which is totally annoying to most people. <laughs> I know I completely I completely bore my wife with trivia all the time that I know she's only half listening to. And I don't blame her at all for half listening to. It. She just knows I need to talk. She knows that. Like she doesn't actually need to retain all of these things that okay. I'm saying when I talk about like, you know, oh, here's what they did for Bound for Bound for Glory and all the, you know, behind the scenes stuff like that. You know, she doesn't care. Um, and I don't blame her for not caring. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I thought a lot about with the, with the, the people who are super into trains, how that's very much, you know, that's their hobby. Right. There's a lot of their life. And you are certainly uh, a movie person and uh, hosting multiple film podcasts and stuff. And I consider myself a movie person, too. Uh, to a little bit lesser degree, but music is really like the hobby that takes the most time. Yeah. But I'm like, I'd love to be this diehard. I would be a diehard train enthusiast too, but I don't have time. If I'm going to be making music, and I'm right. going to be like, like getting this into movies and stuff like that. You know, I really regret that we only have so much time for hobbies mm-hmm. in life. And, um, that's why I wish I didn't have to work because I'm so interested in so many things. I'd love to have five or six like really time consuming hobbies, but I just, I can't do it. And it's sad. Um, but, uh, that's cool that some people choose trains. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We will eventually, one of the movies on the list is the station, the station agent, uh, which is about people who are really into trains. It's one of the, yeah, one of the most meta picks on the list because <laughs> it's about it's about the sort to... of people who would subscribe to Trains Magazine. Uh, oh, yeah. I have seen it, but uh, it was, it's been a while. There's a lot of I've seen it, but it's been a while. On right, list. right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm looking forward to, and there's a lot of stuff that I've talked about on my other podcast just because it's Criterion collection stuff yeah. that I've already seen. Um, you know, Sullivan's Travels and uh, Le Bec Humane. Um, but stuff I'm I'm looking forward to seeing again and talking about with uh, with a different perspective. Uh, sure. And really just, and uh, this is this is my chance to make up for the Lost in Criterion Sullivan's Travels episode, which was a very early episode in Lost in Criterion, and I'm sh- quite certain that I did not give it uh, the regard that I would have now so yeah it's a wonderful picture i there's so many i can't wait to see and rewatch. i don't know um i mean i'm at a stage where uh, i realized because i watched a ton of movies 
as a teenager and in my early 20s, just tons. That's definitely the period of time where I watched the most things. And I find that if I didn't rewatch it back then, if I only saw it once back then, I barely remember anything about it now that it's 20, 25 years later. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. With, like I said, I saw Bound for Glory like 15 years ago, barely remembered it. And there's quite a few other things like that on the list that I saw once 20 years ago, and I remember so little of it that I'm going to almost see like a movie. And that's fun. And I am hoping I don't have to rewatch every single movie in history every 20 years in order to remember (laughs) it better now. Um, But I used, I mean, you know, we used to, me and my buddies, like, I didn't get in trouble in high school. Me and my friends would just eat nachos and watch triple features all night long on a Friday night. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't doing anything that would ever get me in trouble. Just eating lots of nachos, and watching lots of movies, and uh, which I really miss. And I can't wait for my kid to be old enough to stay up really late, and eat nachos, <laughs> and watch movies. For yeah, that sounds real nice. Uh, it does. My wife is not a late night person, so I'm kind of hoping my kid will be. Uh, so yeah, I have somebody to hang out with late at night. Um, Train them up right. You yeah, you'll I'll it. try. You know, obviously, this is a uh, a biopic about a musician. Uh, yeah. But I was I was surprised at least once at the sort of lengths, the lengths it went to shoehorn a musical performance in. Uh, what is that scene where he is? Uh, he and his partner, I think, are performing to what appears to be. Uh, the cast of extras for a prison movie uh, because it's it's outdoor and a bunch of people in prison uniforms, but there's also like movie lights and a big fan set up that made me think oh, that was... I, in the IMDb thing, uh, the IMDb trivia says they just like captured one of like the, like that's actually their film equipment from Bound for Glory that got captured in the shot. Okay, so it's not meant to and be... It, a- not meant to be a it's not to be like they're they're playing to, they're no they're just playing for prisoners okay they're not playing they're not playing for like extras on a movie set they just it's just like a big goof um oh. with um with with that it's i'm surprised that because it's so apparent yeah I'm, really shocked that it's in the scene because it's I, one of the most obvious i just assumed it was meant to be them on a film set because they're you know just outside la and and uh, something maybe that's maybe that's what hal ashby thought he could get away with when he realized <laughs> uh how he felt. i mean it's there is zero context to what they're <laughs> doing there so you know yeah. it could be anything um <laughs> it was not an egregious enough error for trains magazines to comment on it so they only care about train ears. I, I wonder who wrote the because I can't imagine um, what's his name, John Farr. I don't has, think he wrote like, the train all, stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, who wrote the little blurbs with all the train knowledge? Let's, um, let's see if it's credited in the front. Uh, rankings and reviews by John Farr, copy edit, photo edit, associate editors. Uh, designers. Yeah. No one is actually credited with writing the train blurbs. Just, uh, just uh, maybe, editing everything. Maybe Far really knows his train stuff. I don't know. <laughs> or it could just be like the editor. I wonder right. if. Um, I wonder if like they've done like, and I've never read an issue of Trains Magazine, 
and I guess it's still in print. Yeah. And um, I would take a free subscription if anybody from Trains Magazine is reading. And I will thank you in our podcast to our um, four or five potential listeners. But um, I wonder if they've actually covered movies throughout the history of the magazine. And this was a compilation. You know what I mean? Like maybe they like wrote about a movie in every issue and John Farr was their guy for that. And then they just compiled all of this. I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't think Farr had been writing about movies for that long by the time 2010 yeah. came. Because he, uh, his background is, uh, he was, in, he was in advertising. Um, oh. uh, and spent 20 years in the ad business before he decided to start becoming a, a film advocate. And it was 2003. Oh. He, uh, co-founded, a historic theater, uh, revamp, uh, restored theater in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, yeah. And then started writing DVD detective, a column for the Stanford advocate out of Stanford, Connecticut, which he spun That's into cool. best movies by far dot com. Uh, <laughs> we should have him on an episode sometime. He I bet he'll do it. Yeah, maybe. Well, well, I'll reach out to him. He does not have a Twitter presence. Uh, uh, I discovered. Well, you got his website. So. Yeah, but we've got his website. Yeah, I guess he was writing stuff for Huntington Post. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We can think about special <laughs> guests stuff like right. that uh, in the future. Some, I, I would love to actually have like a diehard uh, trained nerd yeah. like talking about some like his favorite movie or something. Right. That would be fun. But right. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't know any. I don't know any of those people. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> hopefully, some trained folks get on. I'm just looking back through my notes and thinking about other parts of the movie that I really, really loved, and uh, the part where the radio boss is trying to get uh, Woody to uh, uh, give him a list of songs um, that he's yeah. going to perform so that they, to pre-approve everything. Um, and of course, Guthrie doesn't like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but the one in particular, he asks about uh, about one song. He says, "This this isn't about San Fernando Valley or the Pickers, is it?" And what he says is about a man who kills his sweetheart for sleeping around on him, uh, <laughs> or at least he thinks she is. And the guy just yells, "Fine, fine, good, excellent," and uh, <laughs> like mur- <laughs> murdering your lover for thinking that falsely thinking that she's cheating on you is is fine content for these uh for these uh sponsors but anything about unionizing absolutely not uh so good i, I mean there's there's such a long um tradition of murder ballads in this country right um it, it's just like that's what so many songs were about around the turn of the century like there were so many um so many pop like, you know, 1900 version of pop songs that were about, like, true crime murders, you know, and basically men murder, murdering their girlfriends or girlfriends murdering their uh, boyfriends, stuff like that. And uh, I'm reading a book. I have a book up in the attic called Hear My Sad Story, and it just goes through all these folk songs that were inspired by true events and, sh- like, talks about the true events and man there's a big chapter on all these murder ballads and it was always just like the same story but these songs blew up and became wildly popular 
it's crazy. Right. Um, I kind of murder ballads unnerving a little bit, um, <laughs> but especially modern ones. When I hear like modern people who, you know, are just guys like me trying to write murder ballads, I'm generally turned off and find it silly. Well, that's very but, interesting um, because you are also a man who wrote a four-song EP about presidential assassins. So, uh, it's true. <laughs> I did that. Um, I, I guess I don't really consider them murder ballads, but um, they, I mean, they aren't. But they're, they, yeah, they're they're also not very. Um, uh, I don't know. Like the kind of songs that they are are not songs with plots. They were more impressionistic. Right, of, right. They weren't. They weren't from John Wilkes yeah. Booth's point of view uh, about were, his preparation and committing of. Oh yeah. The assassination. They it were. Was, from, all, right. all those songs, like the the song, was from John Wilkes. Right. Booth's it is from his view, point of view. But right. it, but it was all like the the thing that made it appeal to me was that I cast all of the songs as love songs mm-hmm. and not to the president or whatever, right, but right. like that I cast them as love songs to other people in their lives. Um, so it was kind of more of creating a character in a larger story. I really had a weird time. Uh, this was, excuse me, about 10 or 12 years ago when I wrote that, I wrote some others. I read so much about assassinations, but I also read a lot about religious cults. I also read a lot about kidnappings because the follow-up to the assassins thing was I was going to write a bunch of songs about famous kidnapping cases, and that was a lot harder. Oh, <laughs> I did man. not get very with it. But I've read a lot uh, about kidnappings, too. Um, and uh, I still have a couple that are vaguely kidnapping. And I think I was going to do a little broader than kidnapping cases. It was going to be like famous missing person cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really had a consistent point of view to write from. Um, it's weird. So it, it's challenging. Like uh, when you're writing songs, you kind of don't know what's going to work. But then there's ways that like all the time I have ideas where I'm like, I think that's really going to work. And I just express it to my wife or some other songwriter. And they just look at me and they don't really understand because the idea isn't necessarily what makes it work. So much of it is that I feel the idea is going to work. That mm-hmm. like there's something that I emotionally connect with why this idea works for me. And then like that I can write that. It's why like this, this whole project of me writing a song inspired by all these movies is a very different thing for me, but I'm trying to be like open to it. But like most songwriters hate when somebody comes up to them and says, you should write a song about this because the fact that it's somebody else's idea, Mm -hmm. like means it's not your idea. So you don't have the ownership of it. You don't have like how personal it is to you in order to turn it into a song. Like I can't do it. You tell me to write a song about something. It's, it's really, really hard. I've, I've done that a little bit in projects where people, asked me to write a song about a particular thing i've done it but it's usually a lot more work than a normal song that i write um where the idea is really coming from me because i often have to chew the idea around until i've found a way to look at it right and with the with the train songs like for people wondering what i'm going to do 
I am not going to write 100 train songs. I'm going to just each take each film one by one and try to write something that is inspired by the film. Either it's just a moment or uh, a character or a plot or whatever, but to just take something from it that I feel Absolutely. could turn into a good. You gotta, you gotta do, uh, you gotta do what works, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on at the risk of sounding like I'm poking fun at, at far. Um, yeah, I wanted to touch on one, uh, one quote. His closing paragraph from his, uh, his review in the magazine is okay. Haskell Wexel's brilliant cinematography romances the untamed vastness of America's rural byways, while director Ashby meticulously recreates that long-ago time when our citizens underwent the harshest test since the Civil War. The result is a moving and evocative valentine to our stout ancestors and their descendants. Sure. <laughs> right right that's what that's how i reacted when i first read it it's like okay uh some of that means something so um, uh. it, was, it was a tough time i mean there is a train scene that i wanted to bring up that um i we were talking more of the train stuff earlier yeah but there's the train scene where he when he first kind of gets into a box car and it's really hot, and somebody like predicts that it's going to turn into a fight. And half an hour later, it's a big fight, and everybody in the box car. Um, like I don't get that. Like I, I see that. I was like, why would everybody fight? Like you know, right. you got thirty people in a box car, two people are annoyed. Like because Woody just like runs away and jumps off the car, and like that makes sense to do. It's the same thing as like when you see old westerns, and there's a big bar brawl, like one person right. hits another suddenly 50 people are all hitting each other. Like, right. why would all of those other people hit each other? Yeah. So whatever started this bar uh, brawl in the boxcar, I don't really get, like, why it escalated into, like, women and children also hitting each other. <laughs> like, it is didn't that, make any sense. And it, they didn't give any explanation. I just, like, scenes like that, after seeing a million of them, like kind of pull you out. You just there's there's some Steve McQueen movie that I don't remember which one, but he intentionally starts a bar brawl mm -hmm. that turns into like the typical comic Hollywood. Everybody's fighting and swinging from chandeliers, but he basically throws the first punch and then walks away because he <laughs> actually else. And like that scene, which is a very very well done bar brawl but it's poking fun at how silly the right. hollywood you know, movie saloon bar brawls are and um that this this scene while well, him kind of walking away might do that but in general like it it is you know um, an old western cliche transplanted into the box car right there's no real reason for it um i don't know except to be a comedic beat or something, but I know, feel like there. maybe maybe Ashby's trying to make a point that you know, we shouldn't uh, saint hobos just by nature of them being, you know, or the poor. <laughs> you know, they're not just all all good people. Um, there are there are weird hierarchies within it too, 
And it's interesting, yeah. you know, that that fight starts, and that's the train ride that ends with the yard men um, getting everybody out of the boxcar and threatening yeah. them, very, very extorting them, in fact. Yeah. Um, and threatening to to outright murder at least one of them, right? And um, it, they really could get completely right. away with murder. That train men did kill hobos, right? At that right. Time. Like that was thing that they did without. There was no investigation. There was nothing. It is something that is well documented, which is horrendous. Right. Like that, you would just kill a hobo for riding on your train, but you could. Right, and it's a it's a one two connection of the violence of that life. Um, yeah, and we already know that these are all desperate people, right? Um, yeah, but there's also you know, as previously established, there's there's also just uh, a bunch of people who need mental health care and are just wandering around too. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what the point of that scene is either. Uh, yeah, it it just it's a thing that didn't work for me, right? In a way, in a movie that largely did work for me. Well, we're coming we're coming toward the end and I thought it would be fun if we uh if we did our own traininess rating of each of these movies too. Yeah. Uh, this is number 14, so if we assume that the list is oriented toward train content and the fact that the number 1 movie is just called The Train uh maybe suggests yeah. that that's true. Um uh it would seem that The Train magazine or or Far thinks this is trainy enough to be pretty high on the list. Um, from my, you know, I wrote down when there were trains on scene, there's about 20 minutes of train content in this two hour movie. Uh, <laughs> I kept some, great. I kept some timestamps while I was watching. Uh, it, you know, it closes with, with the train. Uh, at one point mm-hmm. he sings the song, this train. Obviously we also get the, the title of the movie and his yeah. biography from that song as well. Sure. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard Guthrie perform this train. Uh, to me, it's a, you know, sister Rosetta Tharp song. And that's the only version I can think of when I think of the song and try to conjure it. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure offhand. Um, it's hard because like, I mean, I remember I was in high school getting like a, like a Woody greatest hits thing. And half the songs were sung by like Pete Seeger, and, like other people. Like, right. He wasn't even right. like, the, I think like most of the songs on his greatest hits, it was all his buddies and stuff like that, which I think is awesome. Like it's, it's a really cool way to make a CD really. Right. But, um, that, uh, yeah, I guess I, you know, another thought I had is, uh, cause David Carradine, he sings and plays guitar himself, and uh, it's kind of the rare music biopic where um, the star might actually be a better singer. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, I guess Carradine was a, a music major in college, from what I read, and he was—he's written and recorded other music on his own. Um, not like super extensively, but he was, you know, he's a very capable guy. He compared that to, um, we've seen a lot of music biopics where people are just faking it right, or right. Uh, you have no idea. Um, 
I mean, I'm often amazed at like often with easy biopics, you're just kind of like, oh, you know, what's the guy from Mr. Robot sounds like Freddie Mercury. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, but then you realize like the movie's like stupid as hell and you just like queen music and that's the only right, reason right. you hear it, you know, yeah. but it's, it's interesting in that regard that they ended up, you know, casting Tim Buckley and then getting David Carradine when like Richard Dreyfus, Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson yeah. were all considered or offered this role. Uh, yeah. And I don't think of any of those guys as singers really. Right. Maybe. Sure. I mean, Carradine doesn't look anything like Guthrie right. either. None um, of them do. And <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I like, I like that. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, um, Ethan Hawke made um, directed a biopic of Blaze Foley, okay. who is a folk, who's a folk singer. He directed this just a couple years ago, and I thought it was wonderful. And he casts some non-actor musician uh, to play Blaze Foley. And Blaze Foley is most famous for writing the song "Clay Pigeons" that John Prine covered, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's written a few other things. He wrote a song that Lyle Lovett covered called "Election Day." But he's not very famous. But Ethan Hawke just cast a musician that didn't actually sound like him and didn't look at, at all like him. Besides, both of them were overweight. Like, that was kind of intentional because of some of the songs and stuff are about him being mm-hmm. overweight, some of his songs. But um, I like that Ethan Hawke just like, well, nobody knows who the guy is in their life. So Might as well. who cares? It looks like you know i'm just telling the story so i kind of like that um that i mean people know what guthrie looked like but there's not tons of video footage of him in the way that there is with you know ray charles or johnny cash or right. um, freddie mercury or whatever where you kind of feel you need to although like I mean, some of those worked and some of those didn't but with Carradine's casting it was just like they were looking for somebody carrying this kind of musical and that helps. Right. You know, and he's, he's a, he's a character himself, but, um, um, I don't know. It could have worked with probably a bunch of other different people. I thought he did good, but he wasn't, you know, a blow you away presence. I thought. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, back to our train rating though. We got sidetracked with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got totally off. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, trains feature pretty prominently, uh, aside from that egregious error that trains magazine pointed out for us, they're mostly historically accurate. They're well integrated. Um, but again, it's only, it's less than 20 minutes of a two hour film. So I thought maybe four cars out of a five car scale. I don't know how you feel. What do you think? I, I would, I would go closer just considering 20 minutes out of uh, two hours, like that's not a lot of train content. Right. I've seen others on this list that rank below Bound for Glory that have a lot more train content. I would probably give it two stars two. or two cars. I'm sorry, that's because old. you don't have a you don't have a train for the first half hour. That's fair. Then you got then you got 20 minutes or so of, or 10 minutes or so of train stuff, and he gets out to California. And there's like another hour with no train stuff. Right. It's just singing. It's just a lot of singing. And I, I guess that's fair for you me. You know, just being a 
being like in California, you know. So I, I would go with two cars. All right. Uh, out of, but if I was awarding stars, I'd say maybe four out of five stars. It's a good movie. Yeah. But um, I, two two cars. Two cars on train content. Four cars on on or four stars on on movie quality. <laughs> I think uh, sure. I think you make a strong argument. You're right that. You know, because because it is a lot of front heavy with that train content. It's we're a half yeah. hour in, we get ten minutes of train, and then it's never more than two minutes of train. By the when yeah. we come back to trains, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I think I think you're accurate. Two two cars might be the way to go on this one. Well, we come to the end of our train now. And as we sit on the back of the caboose, waving goodbye to the landscape as it rolls by, I'm your conductor, Adam Glass, and I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank our good friend, Nicholas Rowe, who provided the theme music. It's his song, Everything Has Beauty, and you can listen to that on Spotify, Bandcamp, other platforms. That's Nicholas Rowe, R-O-W-E. And speaking of music, my illustrious co-host, engineer ron freeman is pulling out his guitar as we pull off into the sunset (laughs) uh what do you have to share with us today ron so this song um is called the gospel of the sign painter and um i i i watched this movie in kind of half hour 45 minute chunks over several nights and after the first night i started writing something that i kept up with for several nights and then abandoned, um, which is a good thing. It's always a good thing to abandon writing. Um, <laughs> I think it always, no, I agree. Being able, being able to let go is, is very, yeah, very good. In, in the last few years, whenever I've abandoned something like the replacement always, um, is superior. So I, I really had the, the first like three lines of the chorus just kind of popped in my head like with the melody and stuff pretty like pretty immediately after kind of so after i abandoned the thing the trick to like so the whole idea for people listening at home is that we're kind of taking two months between episodes so i have time to write and record a song Mm -hmm. because i spent like a week or so on the shitty idea and when you abandon a shitty idea, you can't just immediately start something that will be better. You need to actually just let your brain relax for a week or two to kind of clear that out of your head so you can start something new. Uh, you need to kind of forget the shitty idea a little bit um, so you can maybe still take something from it or whatever. So that's the kind of time I need. So really, Whenever I've done stuff like that, like let something go, um, the replacement generally just pops in my head very quickly, but it takes a few weeks later. Um, so I had the, those first few lines of the chorus and wrote it down pretty quickly. I definitely came at from that spiritual religious bent that I was raised with. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a prism that I see so much of life through that it's hard to keep out of um it's hard to keep out of my writing for our subject matter on this one i think that's a yeah that's a good thing to keep in oh sure but like i wonder um you know i'm t- 
talk, you know, I started seeing this gospel design painter business and uh, I'm like, oh, am I idolizing Woody too much as I write the thing? And I'm trying to like wrestle within the lyrics of like, you know, like the last, um, the last verse starts with the I'm no saint, but I got a bucket of leftover paint um, kind of thing with the idea of I'm trying to like, paint that picture of him being a complete person while also being an inspiration, Mm -hmm. Um, being somebody that musically I've definitely looked up to and want to emulate. I was intentional in ways, um, because Woody Guthrie was someone who very rarely used a fourth chord in a song. (laughs) He was three chords a lot of the time, two chords a lot of the time. And when I, like, at one point, the verse had um, a fourth chord that was the minor sixth, and I, which is a simple enough thing. Most of the time I'm writing songs that are four or five chords. I'm not fancy, but I I use more chords than Woody usually does. But I intentionally eliminated it just because Woody wouldn't have used it, uh, because I could have sung it without it. I didn't. Um, so there are some conscious things there. It's um, the melody isn't very Woody-like, but the, I was hoping for a Woody-like feel in its simplicity. It's kind of weird because I wanted to capture some of the film while capturing Woody and showing that inspiration. I like the song more than I like how I sound talking about. It. <laughs> <laughs> well. If it counts for anything, I like both because I enjoy hearing about other people's creative processes, too. Because uh, I want to thank my friends Seth Ellsworth and Brian Skeel, who helped with the recording and mixing. Uh, so I should do that. And I will put this up on our um, my band's Bandcamp page, lostorchards.bandcamp. So look for that there. Or lostorchards.bandcamp.com, I guess. You know how to use Bandcamp. Just look up Lost Orchard. <laughs> we'll do that. Yes, stuff. indeed. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. Well, there we go. Thank you again for listening. This has been the Movie Roundhouse. We will see you again for another ride sometime in the future. Uh, But we are an occasional podcast, so I'm not making any promises right now. This is the Gospel of the Sign Painter. I'm Adam Glass, and Ron Freeman is my co-host and wrote this song, and I'm so happy with it. Tell the Lord, tell the folks down in the orchard Let's all make up some brand new songs to sing Write your poems in this world that ain't your home Set your eyes on the just and holy King All I need some melody I picked up from the wind somewhere Got more words than a preacher can preach We'll sing the gospel of the sign painter, the rabble rousing philanderer from California to Coney Island Beach. Near and far, find me sleeping in a boxcar. I live without a place to lay my head. Love the poor, may their treasures all endure. I'm just trying to understand what Jesus said. All I need is a melody I picked up from the wind somewhere. Got more words than a preacher can preach. Mm-hmm.
Sing the gospel of the sign painter, the rabble rousing philanderer from California to Coney Island Beach. I'm no saint, but I got a bucket of leftover paint. My hand is steady and my heart brings good news. Tell the others, look out for signs and wonders, or find your light in a working man's blue. All I need some melody I picked up from the wind somewhere. Got more words than a preacher can preach. I'll sing the gospel of the sign painter, the rabble rousing philanderer from California to Coney Island Beach. California to Coney Island Beach.